following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, so we're going to uh, get into the message this morning, and we're at the moment in the midst of a series leading up to Easter, a Lent series called Images of the Cross. What we're doing for, for several weeks is we're looking at the main metaphors or images in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, that describe the centrality of the work of Jesus. So we have looked at, so far, the image of the slave market, talking about redemption and ransom. We've looked at the image of the battlefield and the victory that God has won on the cross. Laura last week looked at the image of the family and friendship and the theme of reconciliation. And today, we're going to look at the image of the courtroom or the law court, judicial kind of language, legal kind of language that we find in the New Testament to describe what Jesus did on the cross. Now, I would say uh, that the courtroom kind of image is probably the, the most popular, the most dominant, the most common way that Christians today describe and think about the work of Jesus. And usually the courtroom story goes like this. See if this sounds familiar. God is the judge, and you are the guilty plaintiff. And God reads out the charges against you, all of your sins. He declares that you are guilty. He sentences you to death. And just as you're about to be led away, Jesus bursts into the courtroom like Denny Crane from Boston Legal. And he goes up to the judge and he says, Your Honor, let me take the penalty for this person's sentence. Let me pay the sentence for them. The judge agrees. Jesus is sentenced to death and you get to go free. Hands up if you've heard some version of that story at some point in your life. Maybe not with Denny Crane in it, but some version of it. Yeah, it's pretty common. It's, it's, it's a very popular common way of describing the atonement, describing the sacrifice of Jesus. And there's a lot of good things about it. There's a lot of good truth in that uh, image and in that story and in that metaphor. There are some things that are not so helpful in that metaphor. There are some weaknesses of that story as well. And there are some things that are just left out that aren't in it. And one of the problems, one of the things I think we've got to be careful of is sometimes people want to elevate the courtroom image above every other image and talk about the cross exclusively in judicial or forensic language. And we have to be careful about doing that. This is one way of thinking about the death of Jesus, but it's not the only way. The point of the series is to explore a range of images that we find in the Bible to describe what Jesus did. Each of them shed light on the mystery of the atonement. Each of them reveals something. And the courtroom image is an important one, and it has its place, but it's one of many golf clubs in the bag, so to speak. You need all the clubs to, pay, to play the whole course. So let's not elevate it beyond the others, but at the same time, let's explore it and let's unpack it and see what it has to add to the picture. So what we'll do is anchor ourselves in one particular passage in the Bible uh, today, Romans chapter 3, which is a, a key passage, a critical passage, uh, where a lot of this legal language comes to the fore to describe the atonement. You might not catch that legal language at first because some of the words don't sound that way, but we'll explore it and uh, base ourselves on this text. So Romans 3, and we'll start verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Now, the word righteous uh, simply means, in its broadest sense, 
to be found in the right in a court of law. It's a legal term. It exclu- wasn't exclusively a religious term. It simply meant that if you were involved in a law case, a court case, uh, and the court found in your favor, you were acquitted or you won the case, you were declared righteous. That's what it meant. The, court, the gavel comes down. You are declared to be in the right. You are righteous. So what does it mean then to be declared righteous in God's sight? Well, to understand that, it's helpful, I think, to go back to one of the first occurrences of the word righteous in the whole Bible in Genesis 15. Just keep your bookmark in Romans 3, pop back to Genesis 15 for a moment. This is the point in the biblical story where God appears to Abraham. God appeared, well, he was Abraham at that stage. God appears to Abraham and he makes these extraordinary promises to him. He does this in chapter 12 and again in chapter 15 of Genesis. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I will bless you and form a great people through you, and I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. God makes these promises to Abraham. He binds himself to Abraham in a covenant or a contract, like a legal contract, so that God is absolutely committed to being faithful and fulfilling these promises that he's made. In response to that, look what happens to Abraham in chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believes or has faith in what God has said, and God credits it to him as righteousness. Now, what does it mean for Abraham to be declared in the right or to be made righteous? Well, in the first instance, it means that God was declaring that Abraham is right with him, that Abraham is in right standing or right relationship with God, not by any virtue of his own, not by any merit of his own, but that Abraham is right with God. But it means more than that. Abraham is not just being declared right with God. He's also being made the first founding member of this huge family that God is about to create through him. Abraham is being made the first in a long line of promise that will run through Israel and will eventually somehow extend out to all nations, this huge covenant family. Abraham's made the first guy and the founding father in this family. And this is part of what it means that Abraham is made righteous with God. He's made right with God in the context of this covenant family. Righteousness does not just purely have an individual connotation to it, where it's about me just being right before God as if no one else exists. From this point forward in the biblical story, righteousness has this covenant context. It has this communal context. So we could say this, to be declared righteous means to be declared right with God and made part of his family. Okay, two things. It's like a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. To be made right with God means to be made right with him, declared right with him, and brought within his family, made in right standing within the covenant community. Both of those things happened to Abraham. Both of those things are included in what it meant for him to be declared or made righteous, be credited with righteousness. Now, come back to Romans 3. Paul's got all that in his mind. He's a good Jew. He knows his Old Testament. He knows how the word righteousness is used through the Old Testament. And here he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. In other words, no one is going to be declared right with God and part of his family by observing the law. Now, when Paul uses the word law, nomos, he is not thinking of some generic set of right and wrong. He's not thinking of a general abstract moral principle of what we should and shouldn't do. He is thinking quite specifically here of the Jewish law, the Torah, the first five books 
of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. That's the law as Paul learned it. That's the law as Paul kept it. When he uses the word law in the New Testament in Paul's writings, it's always in reference to the specific law, not just a kind of general philosophical law, but the law God revealed to Moses for Israel. So Paul is saying, no one is going to be declared right with God and part of his family through keeping the Torah, through keeping the Jewish law. Why not? Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That's the problem for Paul. The law cannot make us truly righteous because the Torah itself makes us conscious of sin. That doesn't mean nobody could keep the law. Paul kept the law. We sometimes get this idea that it was impossible to keep all of the hundreds of commandments in the Old Testament. But Paul tells us in Philippians 3, as for the righteousness that came through observing the law, faultless. He kept it. It was demanding. It was exacting. But people could and did keep it. Paul's point is that even if you keep the law, even if you perfectly keep Torah, it doesn't make you truly righteous in God's sight. It gives you a kind of external ceremonial righteousness that comes by observing the law, but it doesn't get to your heart. It doesn't make you truly right before God, and it doesn't truly qualify you to be part of his covenant family because the law itself is like a mirror held up to us to reveal the sinfulness of our own heart. The very prescriptions of the law were symbols and illustrations of human sinfulness. The dietary laws, the cleanliness laws, the sacrificial laws, all of these illustrated an unclean humanity compared to a clean and pure and holy God. They represented this breach of sin and the way in which human beings are sinful in ways that go way beyond the external requirements of the law. You could keep the law and still have a corrupt heart. You could keep the law and still do it for the wrong reasons. You could keep the law and still hate somebody. Your inner heart could be as dark as night, but you could keep the law. Someone could go through the motions of the law and their heart could be far from God. And that's what Paul's saying. The law itself is not what makes us truly righteous before God. No Jewish person, and by extension, no Gentile person, no non-Jew could ever truly be righteous, truly be right with God through observing the law. The law keeps us conscious of our own deep internal sinfulness and depravity, even if you manage to keep the external requirements. So that's the bad news. And then in verse 21, Paul turns a corner, and this is really what we need to get to, the good news. But now he says, apart from the law, apart from the Torah, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness of God don't think of it so much as a commodity that God gives to you. The righteousness of God is his own righteousness. It's a quality that God has. It's his own faithfulness to the covenant that he's made. God is righteous because he keeps covenant with his people, because he is faithful to his promises. God's righteousness is his ability to be faithful to the promises he's made, going way back to Israel, to, to Moses, and even way back to Abraham. How's God going to be faithful to those promises? How is he going to be righteous? How is he going to be just? How is he going to bring blessing to all nations through Abraham? So far in the biblical story, all that's happened is he's brought blessing to one nation, Israel, and they're shot through with sin. So how's the promise going to extend? How are we as Gentiles going to get in on this promise? How's God going to be faithful? How's God going to be righteous? The answer comes in the end of verse 22. 
beginning of verse 22. There, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. I think a better translation of that, a more literal translation of that verse, is this. This righteousness is by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. Paul's emphasis here is not, firstly, on my faith and your faith. It is on the faithfulness of Jesus. Our faith comes in response to Jesus' own faithfulness. So Paul's saying, how's God shown himself to be righteous? How's he shown himself to be faithful to his promises going way back to Abraham? He's done it through the faithfulness of his servant Jesus. Faithfulness of his Christ, his Messiah, Jesus. Jesus has come as the truly faithful one. He has lived a faithful life on behalf of all Israel and on behalf of all of us. Jesus has lived a faithful life. He fulfilled Israel's covenant with God. Not just because he kept the law externally, but because his heart was faithful to God. He was truly righteous, truly worthy of being right with God and part of the family. He lived the life that you and I should have lived, a faithful life to God. And then he went on and he did more than that. He died a faithful death. Jesus was faithful in his life and his death. On the cross, Jesus died for all of our unfaithfulness and all of our unrighteousness, all of our failure to truly be the people God created us and intended us to be, all of our failure to be right with God, all of our sin, all of our impure motives, all of our wickedness, all of that deep selfishness that sits in our heart. God, in the form of Jesus, died for those things. He died to pay the price for Israel's unfaithfulness to the covenant God had made with them. And more broadly, he died for the sins of everybody who's come from Adam. Every human being. And he did it by taking upon himself the very curse that's prescribed in the law, death. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus himself took the penalty or the consequence of Israel's own unfaithfulness to God, violating the law, Jesus took it upon himself, the curse, the penalty of death. And more broadly, he took all the sins of humanity on his own shoulders, bore them in his own body, all of our unfaithfulness loaded up onto Jesus on the cross. And he died in faithfulness to the Father. He died that death and carried our sins to the grave. Now, because of this, there's good news. And this is verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. We've all fallen short of true righteousness. And we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We're justified. The word justified is the same, from the same Greek word as righteousness. Just means the same thing. Justified means to be made righteous. That we are declared right with God. That we are declared to be part of his family. God justifies us. And he does this because when we come to Jesus, when a person comes to Jesus, and, and, and many of you have done this, and, and given your life over to Christ, exercised faith in him, you've trusted Jesus for your faithful life that you haven't lived. You've trusted Jesus in his faithful death that you should have died. You've trusted his life as the sufficient life for yours. You've trusted his death as the sufficient death for yours. You've handed your life over to him. It's what it means to exercise faith in Jesus Christ, to rest completely, throw ourselves completely on the finished work of Jesus. And as we do that, as we throw ourselves on the cross, God justifies us. 
He makes us right with him because of the faithful life and the faithful death of Jesus. God justifies us. He makes us right with him and he draws us into the family. It's the other dimension of righteousness, draws us into the covenant family. That's why the church is so important in God's plan and God's story. It's part of what it means to be made righteous. We are in good standing with God because of Jesus. And we're in good standing within his covenant family. We're grafted in, as Paul's going to go on to say in Romans 9 through 11. As Gentiles, we become part of the story. And we become children of Abraham. Even though we're not biological descendants, we become, as non-Jews, children, true children of Abraham because of the work of Jesus. And Paul sums all this up with this great word that appears many times in the New Testament. Verse 24 All are justified freely by His grace. That word grace just simply means unearned favor. Undeserved, unmerited, nothing in us that's worthy of it, just God's favor poured out. I think the best way to think about grace is to set it next to the concept of mercy. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. So we deserve judgment, right? As sinful people, as unrighteous people, we deserve punishment, we deserve destruction, we deserve eternal separation from God. That's what we deserve. Mercy is God refraining from giving us that. That's what we deserve, but God stays his hand and he doesn't give us the awful consequences of our own lives. That would be mercy. But grace goes further. Grace doesn't just not give us what we deserve, grace gives us the opposite of what we deserve. Grace is a proactive thing where God says, not only will I not punish you and not hand you over to the consequences of your sin, instead I'll give you the opposite. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you love. I will give you freedom. I will make you right with me. I will draw you into this huge covenant family that I've been building ever since Abraham. I will make you a participant in it. I'm going to make you part of my kingdom and the new creation. I'm going to make you an agent of renewal in the world around you so you're part of the story and I'm going to make you uh, a co-heir with Christ. You're going to be part of the inheritance of the new creation that comes when Jesus returns. All of that is what God gives us. That's grace. It moves in completely the opposite direction to everything that we deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve condemnation. God showers us with blessing. He showers us with riches, almost recklessly. This prodigal God who gives us exactly what we don't deserve. That's grace. Nothing in us that's worthy, nothing in us that's deserving. But God lavishes love, freedom, and life on us through His Son, Jesus. Purely through His Son, Jesus. Man, I think we need these moments where grace just clicks. Do you know what I mean? Because I, I know how easy it is to listen to a sermon like this, and many of you have heard stuff like this before, and it's the same kind of deal. But you need those moments where grace just gets into your heart, and you get it. Not just cognitively, but you get it at a heart level. I remember when this happened to me. When I was a teenager, I read a book by a guy called Jerry Bridges. It's called Transforming Grace. It had a really awful-looking cover on it. I remember this red and pink and purple thing. I'm sure if it had a better cover, more people would understand grace. But it was, it was, that was what it was. It was, a, it was a beautiful book, though, and he just described beautifully and practically uh, and accessibly what grace means, that we are so unworthy. There's nothing in us that's worthy of this. 
And yet God has lavished it on us through Jesus, that he's paid everything, Israel's penalty, our penalty, and he has lavished free grace upon us. And even though I'd heard similar things like that before, having come through Sunday school and sat through a few sermons and things, I just remember in the course of reading that book, somehow something clicked. God just got it into my heart in a deeper way. And I really believe you can have understanding. You can, you can recite that stuff about grace. But do you? is it in the bones? Is it in every fiber of your being? It needs to get from our head to our heart so that it becomes our defining reality. I think we need to pray. Perhaps the application from today is we pray to God for grace moments where he just presses it in more deeply and we internalize it. We glimpse our own unworthiness and we glimpse the tremendous sufficiency of what God has done for us. We need to pray that God gets that into our bones more. And I'm convinced that if that happened, if we truly drank deeply of this message, our lives would be so fundamentally different. It would go to the heart of our issues around self-esteem, the identity issues we have, the insecurities that we live with, the anxieties, the guilt, the shame, the fear, the constant sense that God is not pleased with us, all of those things are because we can sit in church and hear a message about grace, but it hasn't yet got in. We are not living out of that center yet. Now, I just pray that God places this on your heart in a new and fresh way today. We need to be reminded of these things sometimes more than we need to be taught, right? Okay, so Paul then wraps up this section with one final thought, which is really important in the whole courtroom scene. In verse 26, we'll skip over verse 25 because he switches metaphors and talks about sacrifice, which we're going to come to next week. But in verse 26, Paul says he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God has done all this. In other words, he saved us, he's demonstrated grace, he's redeemed us in order to demonstrate his justice and again think of that not just in terms of god the judge dishing out punishments and penalties but god proving himself faithful to what he has promised faithful to the covenant he has made that's the question hanging in the air in romans 3 how will god prove himself faithful to the promises he made way back there to abraham because they don't seem like they've been fulfilled and paul says we're the living proof of it when we come to Christ and when our lives are woven into this family that God's creating, we are the living proof of God's faithfulness to Abraham because we're part of all the nations that God is blessing. We're part of this huge community of people that he promised to create through Abraham. We are living proof of God's faithfulness and we are living proof that God is a covenant-keeping God. Every one of you that is not Jewish and who follows Jesus is a living proof that God is faithful to the promise he made to Abraham to raise up from Abraham blessing that's going to extend to every single nation. And ultimately, this whole courtroom story is for the benefit of God to show his righteousness, to show his justice, to show his faithfulness. It's really only, <clears throat> only secondarily about us and, and what benefits we receive. It's all to glorify God and show that he is faithful, and he is righteous, and he is just, and he keeps his promises.
So you put this whole courtroom story together. You know, one of the stories that um, has gone around a lot to describe the death of Jesus and people use it to explain the atonement is a story about a father and a son and the father operates a drawbridge. Some of you know this one? And uh, every day the father pulls the lever on the bridge and the drawbridge goes up so that boats can go past. And one day the father goes to pull the lever and he discovers that his son is playing out underneath the workings, the mechanics of the bridge. He knows that if he pulls the lever, he'll crush his son. But if he doesn't pull the lever, there's a ship coming and it will smash into the bridge and hundreds of people will be killed. At the last possible second, the father decides to pull the lever. His son is crushed, but the people are saved. And this is used as a description of what Jesus has done for us. Now, there's a lot of good things. Like any analogy, there's a lot of good things in that, especially the fact that it describes the costliness of the father's decision. But one of the weaknesses with that story is that it really makes God the victim of an accident. And it makes the whole thing a big dilemma that that sort of caught God off guard. He should never have been in that situation. He should have been looking after his son, keeping a closer eye on him, doing his job better, arguably. He's, He's hoisted, the situation's hoisted upon him, and he's put in an impossible place. But that is not the way that the Scriptures tell the story of the atonement. The death of Jesus was in the mind of God before the creation of the world. Revelation says this, the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. This was always God's plan. This was always God's purpose. And especially since he entered into this covenant with Abraham, God at that point knew one day he's going to send Jesus. One day Jesus will be the fulfillment of these promises. He will fulfill God's covenant to Abraham. He'll be the means through which blessing goes out to all nations. He'll be the source of our righteousness. God ordained this. God foresaw all of this. It was part of his plan. So let's be careful not to make the atonement an accident that catches God off guard. All of this was part of God's plan and the means through which he decided that he would be faithful to his covenant promises, going right back through the whole extent of the Old Testament scripture. So this courtroom analogy, it's good to use. It's okay to use. It's there. All the language around judge and verdict and penalty and law and punishment, that's right there in the scriptures. But we just need to use it the right way. Yes, God is our judge, and he does find us guilty. But God, we've got to remember, is a loving judge. He's not an impersonal judge that just sees you as a case number, doesn't just see you as another person who walks in and out of his courtroom. He is a loving judge who desires, ruthlessly desires relationship with you and is deeply grieved at what sin has done to disrupt that fellowship. And we are guilty. We are the guilty plaintiff. But our our sin, our guilt, our unrighteousness is not just individual commandment breaking between us and God. It also affects the family. We're not worthy of being part of the family that God's created. And Jesus has paid the price for us. He's taken upon himself our life and our death. He's lived for us and he's died for us. And he's been resurrected for us. And all of this ultimately is for the purpose of bringing righteousness to us, that God can bring down the gavel and declare that we are righteous, we are right with God. And it's for the purpose of honoring God and vindicating his own righteousness, that he is seen to be a promise keeper and a covenant keeper, going right back to his promises to Abraham. And for us, this should fill us, I think, with confidence, with hope, 
with a deep sense of security and rest at the amazing and extravagant love of God, at the grace of God that's been shown to us as undeserving sinners. I caught up with a young woman recently who was telling me that she's had a whole past in um, drug addiction and has just been caught in that world so strongly, entangled in it. And she's coming out of it now. She's recovering. She's, cl- she's been clean for a long time. And she said that in, in this whole journey of, of wrestling with drug addiction, there have been a lot of times, she's gone in and out of church a bit, but she said partly she has not gone to church because she feels like if she walks in the door, she's going to be judged. She walks in the door, people are going to judge her. Now, I don't know whether that would or wouldn't be true, but isn't it sad that people could think that way and feel that way? And they do. We know that's a common sentiment. But it makes you think, how, how has the gospel come so far off track? How have we come so far that we would become judgmental? Isn't grace about showing us that we, we are so unbelievably unworthy? And we've been saved through sheer, lavish mercy and grace. We have nothing to be judgmental. We should be the last people to cast a judgmental eye to anybody else because we recognize our own sinful condition and we know that it's only because of the cross of Jesus Christ that we are right with God. We know better, much as we want to look down our noses at people and rank them on a scale of 1 to 10 or whatever. Romans 3.23 is clear. There is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I love the way Philip Yancey puts it towards the end of his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He's speaking specifically about communion, which we're going to take in just a minute. And he says, you know, I'm paraphrasing him, but he says, we don't take communion because we're good Christians. We take communion because we're hopeless Christians, because we're terrible Christians, because every day we stuff up and screw up and mess up and continually fall short of the glory of God. And we desperately rely on the grace and the mercy of our Savior simply to take another breath let alone receive forgiveness for our sins. That's a good way of thinking about it. And as we approach the table this morning, let's not come there with any sort of self, any kind of merit, any kind of sense of deserving or entitlement. Let's just put that all to death and cast ourselves again at the foot of the cross and just stare in wonder at what God has done for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ has died for us, taking our sin and our shame and breathing life and hope and blessing and forgiveness into us instead. Praise God for his grace, right? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for your amazing grace. And I pray for a fresh awakening in our hearts of your grace this morning. Lord, for those who have never got it, and for those who have got it a thousand times, but still need to be reawakened, God, open our eyes to what you've done. Open our eyes to the depth of the hole that we've landed ourselves in and open our eyes to the extent that you've reached down, plucked us out, taken us in your hand and lifted us up. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that this was always your plan. Thank you this was always the purpose through which you'd reveal yourself and restore us, restore humanity and indeed all of creation. Thank you for your forgiveness. God, we are so undeserving, but never let us think, Father, that it's anything in us that makes us worthy of you. But never let us think too lowly and too poorly of the cross either. Never let us lose sight of the total sufficiency of what you've done, that it's done, that it's finished. 
that our sin is removed and our shame is taken away. Thank you, Jesus, that it's done. Thank you that when you said it is finished, you meant it. Give us that security. Press the message of grace more deeply into our hearts than it's ever been. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.